This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Black Hereford Chronicles with Jen Hill. Join me for insightful conversations and interviews about our paddle industry. Here we discuss the shared struggles and successes of this life we've chosen as ranchers. Here, we seek to learn from the experts around us, eager to grow and challenge the accepted. Here we are, the Black Hereford Chronicles. This episode is sponsored by Gestell Family Farms and their exceptional Black Herefords. Congratulations to the Gestells on their top shelf consignments at last weekend's sale down in Tennessee. If you missed your opportunity at that sale, make sure you give Bill a holler. He'd love to chat with you. If you're in the market for sound, proven Black Herefords, you'll want to see what's going on at Gestell Family Farms. You can get a hold of Bill anytime by email at B-G-A-E-S-T-E-L at live.com or give him a call at 304-268-9121. The Source for Genetic Excellence Sale hosted by the Tennessee Black Hereford Association was last weekend. The 10 bulls averaged $3,380 and the 28 registered females averaged $2,894. Embryo transplant technology is nothing new to the industry, and most of us have utilized it at one time or another. There's so many moving parts and pieces to a successful ET program, I knew there'd be a lot for us to learn on the topic. I'll tell you, the first couple of times that we tried to flush a cow years back, it was a total disaster. At our old location, finding qualified ET people was a really big challenge. There was just nobody nearby. So our first time, we dropped off the cow at the ET facility, probably five hours from home, get a call a few months later to go pick her up, and we were told she'd only given a couple of eggs. I really think it was like two. Bummed, we went to go get her, and when we got to the facility, I was hot. That cow had dropped several hundred pounds in the time she was there, and she was not fat going in. Maybe a score five? You can say a lot of things about our program, but we do not push overfed cows. I thought, well, no wonder she didn't flush. She's been hungry the whole dang time. So the next year we decided we'll give it another go with a different tech, and this time we'll keep her at home and just have them out to do the flush. That didn't go a whole lot better. We just weren't set up for it. The day of the flush, it was hot. I think it was a thundery day. Our chute was not inside, so we like tried to throw a tarp up over it as best we could. It was about as farmer-rigged of a setup as you can imagine, and unsurprisingly, We didn't do very well that time either, so we gave up. E.T. just must not be for us. Then when we moved into heavier cow country, we realized, oh, we have options again. So we did a lot of E.T. work this fall, and our experience was totally different. I tell you all of this to say that the people you work with matter. Educating yourself about the process and how to make it work for you and your setup matters. It's not an inexpensive gamble. So if there's things that we need to know about how to improve our chances, let's learn about them. 
I'm excited about today's guests from the International Embryo Technology School. They provide repo training to breeders and vets alike and have a wealth of knowledge. We talked about the early years of embryo transfer, donor and reset management, and dug into IVF versus ET and when to use them. Let's dig in. Thanks for tuning in to the Black Herford Chronicles. I've got a couple of guests here today. We're going to talk about ET, which I'm really excited about. So before we dive into that, um, would you guys go ahead and just kind of introduce yourselves? Tell me a little bit about what you're doing down there and your background in the industry. Sure. Uh, I'll get started. My name is Jason Michaels. Um, I kind of run the place now. My stepdad, Dr. Peter Ellison, started the school about 30 years ago, and um, he passed away almost five years ago, and we just kept it going. And uh, brought Dale Whitaker, who's here with me today, uh, on as an instructor, and just kept the school going. Um, at the school, we uh, train livestock breeders and veterinarians how to do embryo transfer, as well as OPU, ovum pickup. And uh, veterinarians also get 50 hours of continuing ed for coming to the school as well. So we get a good mix of students. Um, from all over the country and all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of times we have international students and uh, just, we get a, usually a student from Canada or Canada just about every time. And yeah, we've had them from Australia, had a veterinarian here the other day from Ireland, New Zealand, New Zealand. Um, yeah, Mexico. Yeah, they come from all they, over. They come from all over the place. And sometimes there's a little bit of a communication gap, but uh, we do the best we can. Well, that's got to be really interesting because I'm sure they've got different cultural ways of looking at things, too. So I can't imagine trying to teach people in different languages. And and that's that's got to be wild. It It is. It, it can be it can be a, a challenge for sure. But I I think we get our I think we get it across because we all have the same goals. Or we wouldn't be here. So we're all cattlemen or or people that have desire for this type of uh uh, you know, future. So, uh, and, and plus they pay to be here, of course, so they have an interest in to learn. And, uh, it, we, we kind of, we kind of teach it as a, as a family, uh, week here, instead of, uh, we don't get real, uh, you know, down in the weeds in the book, we kind of just talk about practical things. And, uh, of course we touch every aspect of the learning and all the protocols that, that we need to do that, that, uh, simulates or, or, fulfills the whole circle but um but we try to spend more time or i do at least talking about shoot side and experiences and things that i've had over the last 35 years that that may not be in a manual so i think the students seem to appreciate that because i can tell them things that will happen eventually if they do it long enough and they'll remember it i think when it does so yeah, Dale, how did you get into this uh in 1974 um was the first embryos that, that I viewed and I was a freshman in high school and my father had 300 recipients that I heat checked on a horse on natural heat so that would be roughly uh, 15 heats a day if if they were all cycling if they were and so they was all natural natural uh heat nothing was synchronized and all the surgery it was all surgically performed at that time the donor cows were all brought into uh it was an old chicken barn in Missouri, and we would um, um, sedate the animals, roll them over on a metal wagon, tie their legs up to a to a wagon, and put baggies on their feet and wheel them in the surgery room. They'd be caked, 
and do a midline incision between the udder and the navel and actually pull up the uterus to see if there is any uh, recruitment or any uh, uh, CLs on the ovary to make to see if she had any follicular uh, well re recruitment or or uh, CLs or response to the to the uh, follicle stimulating hormone injections that she was given. If she did not, then she was sewn up, and that was one time that she was used with the scar tissueing. Uh, with that mid with that surgery, you could only use those animals about three times for donor cows or recipients were the same thing about three times. So if you had an expensive animal at that time, um, that was pretty, pretty a big deal that because of the lack of times that you could use her. And then we started doing laparotomies in the eighties. We'd come and do laps on the side and it's still the same thing. There's still scar tissue, but we come in from the side when the animals were standing up. Then in the, in the late, in the seventies, started doing non-surgical transfers. And actually Dr. Elgin was, was one of the founders of that procedure to where we could actually go in rectally and palpate the cow's reproductive tract and feel of her ovaries to see if there was any follicular recruitment or activity there or ovulations to make her worthy of being extracted or flushed to try to recover embryos and then searched under a microscope. So that with that procedure, which is pretty much what we do today, those animals can be flushed numerous times throughout their life. We usually don't collect those cattle over three times before we recommend trying to breed them and get them back in production. Um, so it's been a real game changer to going, of course, from non-surgical to to uh, conventional, uh, you know, collections. Um, so that that's pretty much what we teach here. Of course, is the comprehensive, you know, full collection and embryo transfer, how to freeze, how to crowd preservate embryos for freezing. Uh, that was another thing we didn't used to be able to freeze embryos. So when you collected cows, you could put them in fresh, but the leftovers we had to throw away. Now that we have that capability, we can send these embryos all over the country and, and uh, breeders can utilize that as a marketing tool, or they can obtain genetics from other parts of the country just by purchasing embryos and sending them in a semen tank uh, instead of shipping them overseas, whatever, the whole animal, now we can just put them in a tank and send them all over the country much cheaper. Well, I'd imagine as all of that technology has gotten easier and improved that you've seen massive adoption compared to what it would have been in the 70s and 80s. Well, I'm I'm pretty fortunate. I'm I'm um I'm one of those guys, I guess, that that kind of started, at least I've got a lot of experience and I've seen a lot of things that a lot of practitioners have not just based on the years that I've been doing this. So um, the biggest thing that's probably happened in the embryo business and uh, as far as user-friendly or being having materials change, one would be going from three-step three, three step frozen embryos, which is the glycerol, 10% glycerol embryos, which required a, um, a, a microscope setup, and they you had to rehydrate those embryos due to the cryoprotectant when they meant to direct transfer embryos means they were frozen and all you had to do to thaw those was basically palpate your recipient to make sure you had a a, uh, a viable cow to transfer it into and then they're they're put into 80 degree water bath for about 40 seconds dried off and transferred directly into the recipe. so they're very user friendly compared to the to the old style the other big thing that's changed in the embryo industry in the last 25 years would be that we used to collect our donor cows with um, 
uh, one liter of fluid, which we pretty much still do, but we would take a Dairy Queen bowl uh, with the with the plastic lid on top with the slit in the top. We'd stick the hose in that, and we'd have to collect into all of those one liter into those Dairy Queen bowls. And uh, we'd have a little bowl runner, little girls that would haul the the uh, bowls back and forth to the lab. We had to search the whole liter of fluid, which took quite a bit of time. Now with a with a filter, where where it enables us to drain off, if you will, um, most of the uh, liter of fluid. The only thing we take to the lab now, search, is about 50 ml. So it makes it much user friendly, much faster. Uh, that's been the biggest change in the business that I've seen in the last 20, 25 years. Makes sense. Well, I would love to talk about donor cows for a minute and get from all of your experience and your perspective, kind of just dig into a little bit what makes a good donor cow. Well, a cow, of course, that's fertile. Every every purebred breeder out there has different levels of of bloodlines and genetics that they're chasing and that they're trying to reproduce and different different breeders have more money than others perhaps so they they have different levels of what they're trying to do so a donor cow for for one breeder may not necessarily be a donor for the other but with that said the the cows that we try to mass produce and that's what we're doing is mass production of the elite donor of the elite cows that he has within his herd if it if it be uh, genetic makeup, or if it be a performance data or whatever, that cow excels in this man's herd. If he wants more of those animals, then that's what we're going to try to do. That would be his donor cow. People flush these cows trying to perhaps um, gain or to produce more females out of that cow to, to keep in the herd and use different sires to get a better gene selection. Some people these donor cows based on their genetic makeup or any even bloodline for a total or not necessarily total, but pretty much to where they can sell those embryos for a profit margin. I mean, they look at it more as, as a factory other than for in-house use. So there's different applications that constitutes a donor cow, depending on what that breeder goals are and, and what he wants to uh, uh, obtain and where he's going as his, as his program progresses. Is there an ideal age for flushing? Well, I, you know, I, I flush, I flush even virgin heifers and people, there's two sides of that coin. One would be people don't want to flush a virgin heifer because she's not proven herself yet. We don't know if she's going to have the EPDs we want or the production or if she's worthy of it. And I fully understand that. The other side of that is she might be the best heifer the man's ever raised, and and he's out of the best cow and the best bloodline that he can afford, and he's using this as an insurance policy to where if lightning hit her or she died calving, at least he's got some embryos in the tank that he can replicate that animal later down the road. So I don't really, you know, my job is to, to flush whatever they present. I tell them head first one at a time, you know, down the chute. So I really don't have a have a, uh, uh, I'm not a consultant. I'm just there to do what they want done. So another thing would be, you ask about age. I just talked about the virgin heifers. I think a cow in her prime is probably the most fertile cow that, you know, that, that she's made to reproduce. The older cows is a lot of the cows that we get, the old geriatric cows that don't, uh, that are about done. 
And that's when we move into the IVF program, which I do as well. I'm a, a satellite for Transova. I do all the aspirations and, and send the oocytes to mostly Transova, Texas. So I aspirate a lot of cows a year. And these are cows that will not produce viable embryos their own uh, on their on their own. So we'll harvest those uh, uh, follicles prior to ovulation, and then we'll fertilize those uh, in addition. So she doesn't have to. So that's really moved in. That's been a big. Uh, the industry's really moving towards that as well. So and and we teach that here at this school also. So once you've got your donor cow picked out, you've got a girl in her prime, you've decided this is the genetic profile you want to push. Let's talk for just a second. I'm sure you've seen a lot of different things come through there. How important is the nutritional management of that cow before you try to flush her? Is there an ideal frame score size? I mean, obviously you're not going to want anything too starved down, but can they get too big? Well, sometimes the, the, when they get too big, they I look at a cow kind of like an athlete, uh, unless it's a lineman for the for um, the Kansas City Chiefs or something. <laughs> Most of these cows, I like to get them. I like to have them in about a body score of about a five on a beef animal, which is which is an animal that you, in any breeding application you want those cattle to be at least stabilized or on the incline. I like to have them on the incline in nutrition and and uh, and also in energy. I'm not a nutritionist, but it makes sense to me that you can't, you can't, you're going to get out of a cow what you put into her. You can't starve a profit out of a cow. So when, when you're trying to breed these animals, they need to be on a balanced nutritional program and, and mineral, uh, everything that she pretty well needs. I don't like a cow real fat. I like with her working clothes on. Um, if she's suckling a calf, that's nature's time for her to uh, rebreed. And so that's the best time to try to uh, harvest her. Oh, that makes sense. So I have one really specific question for you. So I was just considering this year as we were running our own cows through and, and setting up with our own ET program, looking at the non-responders and wondering if those non-responders are generally lower fertility animals that, you know, maybe we just don't see it as obvious when they're out in the field breeding. Well, I don't think necessarily that they're lower fertility. They may just be lower responders, but we have donor cows that we collect that may only give four or five embryos every time. So they're not heavy stimulator cows, but they, but you get a higher preg rate with those embryos that, that, that she does produce. You'll see that if you put in Let's say you put in 100 embryos and you got 10 different matings of 10 embryos per, per mating. Several of those will do real well, maybe in the 60s, even in the 70 percentile range. But you've always got two or three matings that might be in the 20 percent. And I'm not convinced that we pre-sorted those recipients on that particular cow to get 20 percent for her because we don't do that. It's more of a it's either going to be survivability of the embryos, how they were frozen, how they recovered or how they went through the freezing process. But if they're fresh, um, it's going to be more of the cow. I see it. Uh, I, I just see that a lot. Some cows embryos uh, have a higher preg rate than others. So I don't really know that it's going to be a, uh, a fertility issue other than just a lower responder. When there's kind of a misconception, I think, with FSH, people kind of assume that more follicle stimulating hormone you get, the more embryos you're going to 
recover. And in some cases, that's true. If you've got an IVF cow that, you know, I've got 150 cows out of a beef master or uh, oocytes out of a beef master cow before. Well, if you were to give her uh, a high dose of FSH, you're going to get more recruitment. Whichever um, uh, follicle receive or, or starts with, or re, let me start over, whichever follicle has the LH receptors first will be the dominant or their obligatory follicle or the CL. As it, as it pr pr progresses, it puts off an inhibin that regresses the other follicles from developing or ovulating. That's how you get one ovulation okay. for natural breeding. And so with FSH, that blocks that inhibin to let multiple follicles reach, ov reach maturity and ovulate. So if you've got a cow, as we aspirate, and she only has 10 oocytes on that particular wave, follicular wave, I think you can give her three bottles of FSH and you're not going to get any more than 10 oocytes out of that cow because they're just not there. But if she was one of those cows that had 100 and that had 75 on one ovary, and then the more FSH you get, the more block you're going to get off that inhibin, and then you're going to get more recruitment from more FSH. That makes sense. Thank you. I don't think I've ever had it explained to me quite like that before. Thank you. <laughs> on, uh -huh. on the recip cow side, have you seen that certain cows make better recips, or is it all just kind of a six one way, half a dozen the other? Well, there's three different two or three different things that constitutes recip. One thing would be fertility, of course. Um, I like cows that again that are that are the best recips out there. The cows that's presented to me that have recipient calves nursing on them already. They're proven that they'll take an embryo, and and they will. Some cows will just not receive or won't take an embryo, uh, but she'll breed to AI first service, or she might breed to the bull first service, but she considers that a foreign body. And so she will not accept that. Um. <laughs> we joke a lot around here that, you know, I think it's it's easier for people to take kind of their bottom end cows or, uh, frankly, I've seen a lot of recip cows that seem to be their craziest, most aggressive cows, and they throw them into the recip pile. And I just wonder if that's going about it the wrong way. Well, in a lot of cases, the craziest cows you own make the best recips because she gets pregnant every year or she'd have had her head cut off a long time ago. <laughs> if you, if you That's think of true. That, every year That's I, true. Pray, I check cows every year and they'll say, boy, I hope this thing's open. If she's open, she's hitting the road. I can't stand her. She can't pan her. You can't do nothing with her. But she'll bring a calf to the pen every year and she'll breed first every year. And that's why she's still there. The, the other cows, you know, she hiccups one time, she's gone. So that's, that's part of, I mean, that's, that's not really the truth. You don't want a crazy reset because then when the calf's born, she gets up and takes off like a deer and nobody wants to market an embryo calf. That's an idiot. They don't, they're harder to, they're harder to sell. But as far as what constitutes a reset fertility, utter score, you know, a cow that's going to maintain a body weight. It's a 16, 18 month commitment. Time you put an embryo in, you wait nine months and you got to wait another seven months for her to wean it. That's a pretty good um, time frame that you got to deal with. I don't like it when I ask someone how many recips you have, and they say, well, let me preg check my cows, and after I get done preg checking, then I'll know. 
Well, that tells me that he's giving me the cows that didn't breed to the bull naturally. And I appreciate the confidence in, that they have instilled in me, <laughs> but they're probably not the best candidates. I want the cows that calve first and are ready to breed. What about heifers? Well, the heifers are easy to obtain because they're, everybody has heifers and they're open for a reason. It's because they're not non-breeders. They just have never been exposed. I think the thing with heifers, they're going to be losing their teeth at two years old. They're harder to maintain a, um, uh, the balanced nutrition that you need, and they're harder to breed back. I think that's a given fact. But the, the second thing is they're, you're probably going to lose performance off of that for, off that embryo calf should be the best one that you're going to raise in your herd all year. She's not, in most cases, going to milk as well or do as good a job of mothering that calf as uh, as an older cow. So you may sacrifice some of that uh, uh, potential by using heifers, but they are easy to acquire. As far as uh, preg rate goes, there will be very little difference. 5% of heifers will never breed, that, but you don't know which 5% those are. After you try to breed them, they'll eliminate those. And then when you go into cows with calves, they've proven they bred one time. So you feel have more confidence in those. Right. All right. So you've seen a lot of change with this process since you started in this. What do you feel like at this point is the best protocol for setting up those recips? There's a lot of different ways. And that also depends on the customer that you're dealing with, his facilities, his age, his his uh, health situation, what he can do and what he can't do. I, I have different ways that we can do it at different different times. I think the most, I believe the important thing is, is to schedule a time when it, it works for the practitioner schedule, of course, where he can get there. But of course, the 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 owner of the cattle, when it can work with his schedule, but get them into a timely heat to where we can manage those or get those transfers done. Um, that would be, you know, the, the, the main goal. Do you see a difference between people that keep them at home and, and get them all set up themselves? Well, and I guess specifically that would hit more with the donor side, but do you see a difference between people that are doing it themselves versus people that are sending them off to the facility? Are you talking about donor cows? Yeah. Well, as long as the donor cow has time to kind of acclimate and get used to that uh, location where she's at, you have to be careful hauling them very far with when you start getting into a minus seven like you are, and we're down here at 80 <laughs> degrees. I don't. I think that could be a would sure be problematic for that cow to adjust to that climate change. But as long as the cow's there um, long enough where she can kind of adapt, uh, forage could be a difference that would be upsetting to her. Um, the different, you know, management style. But once she gets acclimated, I don't see any any problem one way or the other. I do both. I in-house donor cows for conventional and IVF, and then I do a lot of on-farm work. Hardy bulls, docile cows, sturdy calves. That's what every cattleman wants and what Peter's Farm Black Hereford prides themselves on providing. With a herd built from F1s the Peters family believes in, you know they are bringing quality. They do currently have some bulls and heifers available. Check them out at Peters Farm Black Herfords, all one word, dot com, or give Bobby a call at 704-928-8458.
what kind of success rate? I think, you know, you get a lot of guys that are jumping in to ET and they're, you know, going in with big dreams and sometimes they get a, a bit of a dose of reality. So what kind of success rate do you generally see? I think the national success rate for, for, um, embryo transfers around 57%. Um, you know, on, on, on frozen embryos, it's going to be, um, you know, if it's below, if it's below 50%, it hurts my feelings. Now there's going to be some people out there who might say, well, that's pretty low, but I would rather be on, I would rather sell it on the low side and come in looking like a champ as, <laughs> as tell them it's going to be 65% and we come in at 55 and there, it hurts their feelings. So, you know, I, I, I put in, a, uh, um, about 48, uh, IVF embryos the other day at one facility and got 65%. And I went down the road and put in 40 more at another facility same day, 40 miles apart and got 45%. Well, to me, those are both acceptable results. Um, and it just probably had to do more with management between the two because the the um, uh, climate was pretty much the same. That could have been the difference in the donor cows that we used as far as the receptiveness of those particular embryos out of that cow, you know, the sires that were used, there's, there's a lot of different variables and you can never simulate the same exact situation two times in a row, even if you use the same technician, because there's all the different uh, components that go into success or failure in the embryo business. It's hard to put your finger on any one thing. It's kind of a, could be a multiple um, uh, things that can, can, you know, make it work or, or go wrong. Are there things that you wish cattlemen knew going in things that, you know, maybe most people don't think about that they can do on that management side that would help increase that success rate. This episode is sponsored by HI slash cattle company. We've got a solid choice of Black Hereford and Angus bulls available this spring. HI slash Taft 127 is a program highlight from this year's offering. He's got a deep body and width that you just don't often see in double homo bulls and is pulling in top 3% marbling and top 15% API. You can see the entire offering at our website, HISLASHCattle.com, or give us a follow on Facebook. I don't think you can, um, or at least I'm a believer that you get out of something the effort that you put into it. Uh, myself as a practitioner, I can I can schedule everything. I get everything there to them. Everything's in black and white. If they can read, they can do it. Um, I'm only there for one day or a half a day, and the success that we have is is more in tune with the management and the herd and what I have to deal with. So I can't fix a problem or make, I can't change anything. What I'm, what I'm dealing with is what happened a week ago. It's already happened. I'm just kind of like Christmas. Either you get, you know, a plaid shirt or you get something nice when you open the present. And so, <laughs> so that's kind of what, that's kind of what I'm getting is, is I'm just telling them what happened a week ago and I can't change it today. So I, I, I like to see people give some effort to it, you know, on heat check. Um, I've got people say, well, how many heats do you have? They say, well, I think they was all in heat or, or I don't know. Well, you know, it was raining that day and I was drinking coffee, looking out the window. 
and I believe they was all in heat. But and, and I know some practitioners don't care if those cows are heat checked or not. But I prefer to have a little help. I can tell I can palpate ovaries and know if a cow cycled or not. But I can't tell you on what day she did it. And I don't know that Jesus could tell you exactly what day that cow was in heat. So you're trying to put an embryo in seven day seven day embryo in a cow that was in heat nine days ago or five days ago, and there's still going to be some uh, papilla or uh, some type of you know there, some activity on that ovary, perhaps a CL or whatever that's still there, and you feel like that, that there was activity there, but you don't know when it was, and you put it in once you get past a minus or 24-hour um, uh, window of opportunity, your conception rate is going to be decreased quite a bit. So, you know, you, you just kind of get out of it what they help you and what they put into it. I would love to dig in a little bit into IVF versus ET. I think there's a lot of a lot of mystery around IVF. Like you hear people talk about it a lot, but it's, it's pretty clear that a lot of us don't understand what it is that we're really talking about. So could you take me back, talk to me like I'm 10 and explain to me what the difference is between ET and IVF? Okay. ET is conventional embryo collection is it's, it's in, um, uh, it's in vivo to where we are stimulating the recruitment of those follicles within that within that donor cow, and then she's given a uh, prostaglandin where she actually ovulates or shows signs of heat of estrus, and then she's we fertilize or breed that cow usually two to three times to try to fertilize the embryos in vivo. So she's doing all that work. The embryos come down the fallopian tube and come through the sphincter valve into the uterus in about day five, five and a half, and so they're being, so we're able to collect those cows on day seven. Um, so she does everything. If you get into these older cows that are past their prime and they're not able to do that, then that's when IVF comes into play, more so on those older cows. Other uh, And flush with the uh, conventional, we try to flush every 50 or 60 days. I have done it at every 30 days, but I think you need more time. So I'm going to tell you 50 to 60 days is probably better. With, uh, with uh, IVF, the pros to that is, is that we can do those cows every two weeks and you can do it stimulated or non-stimulated. That cow's gonna have a follicular wave about every seven, about every 10 days, roughly. So the oocytes are on those ovaries pretty much all the time. So we can come in every two weeks and aspirate those right off the ovary with a needle guided ultrasound where I'm looking in the ultrasound machine, holding the ovary with the transducer in the vagina, but my hands in the rectum, I'm holding that ovary tight against the back of the vaginal wall and the transducers beside the cervix. So as I look into the ultrasound machine and I take a needle that's in the transducer and I take my fingers and I just go back and forth into the ovary and there's suction on my vacuum pump that aspirates those oocytes down a needle into a 50 chronicle tube that has heparin and some other media in it that, um, that we have to keep warm because the oocytes feel like if they're cold, of course, then then the cow's dead. So they're more, a lot more uh, temperature sensitive than than regular embryos. Then those are shipped overnight. Within 24 hours, we try to get those fertilized within 24 to well to most 30 hours after we uh, are after they're aspirated. 
another pro, I guess, to the IVF procedure is that we can take conventional semen. They can they can run that through a machine and they can uh, sex the semen, or they can we can just use female sperm, if you will, to fertilize and try to get uh, female uh, embryos, which is very attractive, especially in the dairy business. But um, a lot of these people don't care anything about raising bulls. They want females because they're more valuable. So the sex, uh, the reverse sort is pretty popular. Now there are some bulls, of course, that already have sex semen that they can use, or you can you can uh, conventionally flush with sex semen, but they still don't have all the kinks worked out of that yet. I I, uh, uh, I have some some bulls work well, but as a whole, it's a little more risky than conventional semen. So there's two different applications as far as harvesting embryos. I think they both have their have their have their way. I think the conventional embryos, well, I'm pretty convinced that conventional derived embryos have a little higher conception rate than your IVF embryos. That's pretty much a given, but you can make more of them through IVF because you can do the procedure every two weeks versus every uh, 50 or 60 days. We can also aspirate pregnant cows uh, up to about 100 days. After 100 days, that fetus drops over the pelvic brim. It's It's harder to pull the ovary up to uh, the back of the vaginal wall to hold it because all that weight suspended uh, from the ovary and it's harder to hold it and, and get a, a needle there to where you can aspirate those those follicles. But, but they're there and uh, we can still harvest and make embryos out of those cows. So that cuts the gestation down on that cow where she's not out of production for these people because they only live so long and they want as many embryos as they can get out of those animals, and uh, uh, of course, we don't do anything that's going to hurt the animal or or lower her life expectancy by any way. Um, but those are two two major ways, or that's the only two ways that that uh, we're able to harvest those embryos and make pregnancies. Well, thank you. You broke that down very well. Thank you. So you've seen. A lot. You talked early on about kind of your history and, and the way this technology all started. I'm curious where you think this is going to go in the future. What do you see as the future of reproductive technology? Well, I'm not a scientist and I'm not a researcher. I'm just kind of a follower, not a leader. <laughs> I, I, again, have seen very little change in this industry in the last 35 years. Um, very little. I really don't know where it's headed other than I can tell you that that the IVF business seems to be really moving, trending that way. I don't know. Um, you know, conventional work will always be there, or I say always it'll be there as long as I'm able to to go and do it, I'm sure. But um again, I think I think humans and myself included are are kind of on the lazier side. So it's easier for people to to bring a cow to a facility unloader, uh, aspirator, and 10 minutes loader back on the trailer, and then the embryos are sent to them. Rather than going through a a, um, a protocol as far as synchronization, administering FSH dosages for four days in, in a row, twice a day, breeding that cow for three days, it's a lot more intense, a lot more labor, uh, a lot more time. So I think they like the idea of this, uh, uh, of the IVF route for that reason. And again, they can make probably more embryos faster, but the the problem is, is there again the conception rate may is going to be a little lower, 
and the, the cost of doing business is a little higher with the IVF than conventional in most in most uh, at most times. I mean, not always, but most of the time, it's a little higher. Well, I think we can all hope that as we progress, perhaps conception rates will go up. Well, until the until the people ask me, you know, when they talk to me about doing their work, what's your conception rate? And I say, well, I've been doing it so many years that I think my talent level of talent is as high as it's going to get. And I think you can take, well, I've been to places, big places where we do a lot of work and be two of us are doing transfers and we'll just kind of each, each guy will do 10 or 15 in a row and then somebody else will do 10 or 15. And there, if, if you're, if you do a lot of work, I'm talking about three or 4,000 transfers a year, which is what I do. Um, the, the difference between my conception and another practitioner won't be just a few percent difference one way or the other. I feel like that if I come in somewhere and get 50 or 60%, whoever else you had do it on that day with that set of recips and that weather, uh, under that management with the same donor cows involved would get 50 or 60% as well. There's to be no difference between us. If I got 25%, whoever else you had would have got 25% as well. If I get 30% here and I go down the road five miles and get 60%, I didn't try twice as hard down the road because that's where I make my living. It's not my level of talent. It's other things that you deal with that we talked about earlier as far as uh, uh, the other, you know, the management. The It's not the weather, but it's going to be management, nutrition, uh, all those other factors that go into that for making success or having success. Well, you guys talked until about the cryo. Go ahead. I guess until the cryo protected, until the cryo protected changes or something in the science world or or that, in lack of a better term, that makes these embryos more acceptable. I think all of us as practitioners will benefit from that knowledge unless they come up with a different way of transferring or something that comes out where we can all benefit from it. But as of right now, I think we've all pretty well peaked. Do they know how long an embryo can stay frozen right now before it degrades? Well, I'm not going to use the word forever because we don't know how how long forever is. But I can tell you that I have transferred embryos that's been frozen for 20 years and had great success with those. I think if they if they are frozen and they've not been uh, mishandled through thermal exposure and kept frozen, you know, I I I it's not. I think you're pretty safe, really, in saying that forever. Uh, twenty years is long enough. If we keep an embryo twenty years and thaw it, I think it's probably time to move on with genetics anyway. <laughs> That's true. A lot changes. A lot changes, but it is kind of neat to look at a calf laying there wet shaking his head that's been frozen for 20 years and his parents and grandparents have been been gone for years and years and it's kind of exciting to me to look at him well yeah and that's definitely a a unique way of looking at it that i hadn't thought of matter of fact we thought some embryos here today in the school that were that were uh frozen in in uh 2000 so they're 23 years old, but they're three-step embryos back when we used to freeze them all in uh, 10% glycerol, and some of them had two embryos per straw, which I'm guilty of that myself because it took up less room in the tank, and they had to be run through a, uh, three different solutions to be rehydrated in a microscope setting anyway, 
So we used to freeze them two per straw and some of them one per straw, depending on how many you needed to thaw. So they're still viable. They look just as good as the day that they were frozen. So you guys talked up front a little bit about what you do up there at the International Embryo Tech School. If people are listening to this and they're thinking, you know, I, I would love to learn more about it. Where can they do that at? How can they come spend time with you to, to figure out how this all works? Yeah, I mean, they could go on our website, which is etschool.com. Um, and, you know, there's um, all about all the different courses on there. We also have a, a blog on there with a bunch of, um, you know, topics on the subject. And, um, and then they could go to our Facebook page, too. It's facebook.com forward slash etschool. And we've got a lot of uh, recent post uh, on on all the topics we spoke about today as well on there that they want to go check that out yeah and, and i would definitely recommend people get on that facebook page because you guys share a lot of interesting stuff on that it's a very worthwhile follow yeah yeah we try to put out a lot of helpful information for people and get a lot of uh interaction over the, over the internet for sure through that well thank you guys so much i really appreciate you taking time out of your day i know you guys are busy that's the thing with ET, right? It doesn't necessarily have to fall within the traditional seasons for you to stay busy. I think you guys are busy all the time. So I really appreciate you taking time to sit down with me today. Yeah, we enjoyed it. I hope that I hope this gives clarity to some of your questions and um enjoyed the enjoyed the interview. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks for listening. You can get in on the conversation over at our Facebook page at Black Herford Chronicles, where we'd love to hear from you. Of course, don't forget to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.